Okay, so about 15 years ago, if you can think back that far, I'm not sure if you were watching TV back then, but on Comedy Central, a a comedian news anchor named Stephen Colbert, you may have heard of him, interviewed a Georgia congressman uh, on his show about the policies that this congressman was uh, was backing. In fact, he kind of pointed out that this particular congressman had so far in his tenure in Congress made zero laws, uh, but had co-sponsored a bill uh, to mandate that the Ten Commandments be publicly posted in uh, federal judicial buildings. And so Colbert just took the opportunity, as the comedian in him led him to do, to ask this congressman to name the Ten Commandments live on like recorded TV. And the air just gets sucked out of the room, right? The guy's just going... Uh, you want me to name them? And uh, he's like, yeah, sure, name the, name the commandments. I mean, there's only 10, right? I mean, it shouldn't be that hard. And uh, this particular congressman was in a world of hurt. <laughs> he got some of the big ones. He said, uh, don't, don't kill, to which Colbert goes, one. <laughs> and he said, don't steal and don't lie. And that's where it stopped. He got those three. Now, that's all the comedy of it, but I'm not sure most Americans would even do much better. In fact, right about that same time that that show came out, another report came out that more Americans know the ingredients of a McDonald's Big Mac than can recite the Ten Commandments. I don't know where you are in all this, but who can blame people? I mean, this is an ancient code of law, right? It's so, certainly outdated by now, right? Wouldn't you think? This is, this is uh, you know, the most influential code of law throughout the world in all of recorded history. But haven't they lost their appeal? Right? Isn't this just sort of this outdated rule set that doesn't apply anymore? This is the question that we're faced with. You know, on the one hand, you've got their trajectory of culture which is built on human rebellion, where people hate anyone, especially God, telling them what they can and can't do. So certainly reject the Ten Commandments. Then on the other hand, you've got even popular teaching among churches that minimize the importance of the Ten Commandments, this quintessential piece of Scripture. Now you've heard it said this way, and you might even agree with this statement. You've heard it said that Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. And certainly, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not a salvation of works by any means. But, you know, rules and relationships aren't enemies. In fact, they're friends. Jen Wilkins said it this way. She said, Christianity is absolutely about relationship." Relationship with God, relationship with others. And because this statement is true, Christianity is also unapologetically about rules. For rules show us how to live in those relationships. So rules enable relationships to flourish. So yes, it is about relationship, but not only. God gives us, by His grace, these incredible rules to help us live into the way he designed things to work. Now, if you uh, are just 
starting with us this week, and, uh, and maybe you're fresh to this conversation, I gave a prequel sermon last week on our Longview campus. Do y'all know what prequels are? You know, you've got sequel movies, but then you've got prequels, which is the one that comes before. Okay, so the sermon I preached last week in Longview is a prequel to this series, uh, and it was called Relatable God. It's all about how, uh, how we must understand covenant before we can fully comprehend commandments, how rules will always frustrate us uh, until we understand and comprehend how God relates. And so knowing that God builds every covenant relationship on grace, then we get to this point of rules. So maybe you can want to even go back to moverly.org slash podcasts and you can check out that sermon as sort of a prequel. But the same principle is true both in the Old and the New Testaments. This is where it gets a lot of people. People go, well, the Old Testament, where we get the Ten Commandments and all the law, that's, that's a different God than the New Testament. Now, the New Testament, God's out of grace, but that's not true at all. We see that even in the Exodus, right before the Ten Commandments are given, that God establishes a grace-based covenant with the Israelite people. And this is an amazing, amazing reality to see that God is the same throughout. In fact, going into the New Testament, you would think that if it was a different God, that Jesus would somehow abolish or do away with the Ten Commandments. But he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't get rid of them. He actually affirms them and expands them. Think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Just one example. He said, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, don't even be angry at someone. And what he's getting at is that the most important thing about the law isn't what you do or don't do. It's about what the law is doing inside of you. How is it working in your heart and life? See, the congressman's story perfectly illustrates this. It doesn't matter if the Ten Commandments are posted outside of any building if they aren't taking root inside our hearts. So regardless of what your view is or has been on the Ten Commandments up to this point in your life, they're worth your attention now. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book of the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus into chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't fret. We're going to have the words on the screen for you throughout the sermon this morning. And as you turn there, I want to just point out three things that are true about the Ten Commandments that we're going to be referring to throughout this whole series. And then I want to just cover the first commandment today. So we're not taking a huge chunk. We won't be here all day. We're going to be able to go back and spend time with our families and eat lunch. But for now, we're going to cover a lot in just what are the Ten Commandments, what are they about, and then jumping right into the first one, okay? So the first, the first thing about the Ten Commandments is that they show us, the law shows us God's design for life. If you're there in Exodus 20, look at verse 1 and 2 with me. It says that, the, that, that God spoke all these words, and then he says one phrase that I want to just land on from one moment. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. What does that have to do anything with God's design for life? Well, the names of God are so important here. I want to point these out to you. It starts with saying, I am the Lord. And can I just point out that God initiates this with an I statement? I mean, this is highly relatable. That God wants to know and be in relationship with you. 
If you've ever done counseling or worked through conflict with your spouse or significant others or family or children, you know that counselors encourage you that when you're in conflict in relationship, which actually can be healthy, instead of saying you, you should start with saying I, right? I feel that this, or this makes me feel when this happens. You know, but God says, I want to relate to these people. Every other ancient God in the world would have just, in, if they existed, pointed a finger and said, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. But God says, I am. I am the Lord. The Lord. This Hebrew name for God that God uses when he introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush is the name Yahweh. It became the name that, that signified covenant relationship with the Israelite people. It meant that God was self-existent. He didn't need anybody outside of himself to exist. He's always been. It meant that he was self-sufficient, but it also showed that he was personal and present. So God doesn't need us to keep these commands to somehow validate him or make him feel important. I mean, that's the first thing we ought to recognize about the Ten Commandments. This is God's design for life. He doesn't need us to do these things. They are an invitation, rather, as God gives us these commands as an act of grace as he moves toward people in relationship. This is who God is. He says, I am the Lord. And he says, I am the Lord, your God. Which if he had stopped at I am the Lord, that would have been terrifying. It would have been this moment where the people would have just been, in, and they were, they were in fear of his power and all at Mount Sinai. But he continued by saying, your God that I know you and I want you to know me, right? And this name God is the Hebrew word Elohim, Elohim, which means that God is powerful and sovereign. But it's the name that God introduced to us at the time of creation. So it kind of comes along with it as Yahweh is sort of this covenant God. Elohim is this creator God that as God reveals in Genesis at the time of creation, he creates man in his image. That we are cast in his mold. Meaning that he knows what's best. He designed it all. He came up with the way things work. And he, through these commandments, are inviting sinful people back into the way things work best. The way that humanity can flourish truly again. So I am the Lord your God. It's not just an introductory statement that we need to gloss over. We've got to hone in on that and see that God actually, in his character, has given these commandments, this law, to reinforce his design, to bring people back to the way things were intended to be. Uh, Jill brought home a board game for us the other night and uh and she's been like eyeing this board game she's a designer and so like things that look pretty make a lot I'm looking at it and I'm going I don't know it doesn't look that fun to me but anyway she brings home this game uh, and uh she wants to play it and so we kind of unbox it and it's all these colorful tiles with this you know these cool designs on them and stuff and I'm looking at like I don't know what this is okay I mean I got a board here in front of me she has her own board there's tiles everywhere there's other kinds of tiles there's no numbers there's no letters it's just pictures and I'm going how in the world are you supposed to play well guess what we did we read the instructions which gave us the design of how the game was meant to be played and enjoyed and then we enjoyed it it was fun 
It was competitive. We played several rounds of it because we referred to the design. Had we not done that, we would have been lost. Nothing would have been enjoyable. So it's God's design. Second thing is that it's also the law is a sign pointing to salvation. Keep reading with me. It says, I'm the Lord your God, verse 2, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. And we just focus in on that out of the land part. I want to show you guys a picture. I told you Jill was a designer, and one of the things she loves to do is just paint things. And a friend asked her, kind of commissioned her to paint some signs for them recently, a few years ago. We got pictures of those. Check these out. This is all the places that uh, Jill's friends have lived St. Andrews, any golfers in the room? They lived there in Scotland. Pretty cool, right? Uh, you know, the Dominican Republic. Uh, you've got Austin, College Station, which, you know, you could go either way on that one, right? Some of you, want, some of you fans of one, some of the other. But they're all pointing in their backyard. They're situated and pointing the general direction of those places. That's why those arrows are there, and they're pointing different directions. These are the signs. Now, if there were 10 signs and each sign had a commandment on them, they would all be pointing the same direction. They would be pointing toward Jesus. Now the Israelites were seven weeks removed from slavery in Egypt. This is what he said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This wasn't long ago history. This was recent history. Uh, this was fresh on their minds. And he's just reinforcing who he is to them, that he is a God of rescue and redemption and salvation. And he says, I've drawn you out. I've brought you out of the land. And they are only seven weeks removed from that. And this is a, a, an act of grace and salvation that God gave to them before he gave them the law. So this covenant was made with the Israelites, not only just to extract them from Israel, but so that God could bring from their nation, from their people group, a perfect Savior, a perfect Rescuer, who would keep every command and make salvation available to all. What God, they had experienced coming out of Egypt was just a microcosm of what God wanted to do through them for all people. So the commandments pointed toward Jesus and now on the other side of history, for us, they point back to Jesus. Each commandment is a reminder to us that we cannot keep God's law perfectly. It will be hard for us to study the first command and even think that we could keep one, even a little bit. So we can't keep it. We need a Savior. It's a constant reminder that we need a Savior outside of ourselves to rescue us from the slavery of sin and that savior is jesus who perfectly kept and embodied the entire law making him the only acceptable sacrifice for all of us who cannot keep the law this is the good news of jesus and the law even the old testament law the ten commandments it all points to jesus now that's kind of this focused on the, the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now let's turn to the God who brings them out of the place of slavery. The third thing is that the law is meant to refine the Christian. To refine the Christian. Once the Christian who puts faith in Jesus 
is freed from sin, then what? Then what? The commandments, as many people think, aren't actually a way to break free from sin. This is how most people even today view God. They go, well, if we would do everything God requires, then he might help us. But God's story is exactly the opposite. God says, no, I'm going to give you my grace. I'm going to help you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to redeem you. And then I'm going to usher you in, into this invitation, to this way of living that reclaims the way God intended everything to be. And it's going to be a beautiful partnership, a relationship. And we're offered this way of life. But we often think that we have to achieve before God will receive us. Instead, it, God receives us and then moves us into a life of obedience. And so... We aren't breaking free from slavery by obeying the commands. God has already done that. Instead, he's giving us the way to live in freedom. This is what Kevin DeYoung said. He said, God's not trying to crush us with red tape and regulations. The Ten Commandments aren't prison bars. They're traffic laws, which even if you're on the Autobahn in Germany and you go as fast as you want, you appreciate guidelines because they keep us alive for the most part, right? They're not prison bars. They're traffic laws. He said, not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They are rules for free people to stay free. Jeremiah chapter 31, hundreds of years after the Mount Sinai delivering of uh, the Ten Commandments where God speaks to Moses and Moses brings down the tablets, uh, delivers them to the people. Uh, God then again, 40 years later, through Moses, delivers the Ten Commandments again to the next generation of Israelites right before they enter the Promised Land. Well, hundreds of years later, Israel's gone through a lot of history. They've become a nation with a king and then they divided into two with two kingdoms and then all this history is happening but God is still on the throne he's still moving them toward Jesus he's still inviting them into this relationship continually and continually pursuing them even though they've been unfaithful to him and Jeremiah chapter 31 Jeremiah prophesies about not an old covenant but a new covenant that there's a new covenant coming that God is moving us toward a covenant where God doesn't write his rules on tablets of stone but instead God writes his teaching on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. So this new covenant that Jeremiah prophesies, he's pointing toward the relationship that we have with God through faith in Jesus, who embodied the law perfectly. So we don't seek to obey the commandments in order to be made right with God. Jesus did that for us. Christianity is not just a system of do's and don'ts. Christianity is based on what Jesus has done. So living out the Ten Commandments is how we're refined. In other words, it's how we take the shape of Jesus as we follow him as Lord and leader of our lives. Think about yourself as a rock and over time the sediment of sin just piles on and piles on until you look rough maybe you've been through some stuff in life where you feel like you're a little rough around the edges right and you start to look craggy and hard but placing ourselves under the 
the living water of Jesus Christ inside the riverbanks of the Ten Commandments is how God washes over us with the cool flow of who Jesus is and how he over time erodes all of that hardness and extra sediment until we are smoothed out again, experiencing life the way God intended it to be lived and enjoyed. This is what the commandments do. They shape us into Christ-likeness. So it's our design. It's a sign to us, pointing to Jesus, and it's meant to refine us. Jesus was asked in the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, what's the most important commandment? And they were trying to trap him. Because of all the Old Testament commands, there are 613. Did you guys know that? 613? Uh, I read that this week, and then I heard something interesting yesterday that I didn't ever put the pieces together, but there are, there are 365 negative commands, meaning one for every day. <laughs> like a don't do this, right? One for every day. And then the, the rest are positive commands, do this. Of 613 commands, they, they're trying to trap Jesus, and they said, what's the most important one? And then Jesus' answer was brilliant. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then he says, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You recognize what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is actually, he's summarizing all of the Ten Commandments into one statement. Because the Ten Commandments are ten in number, right? You've got all ten, you can count them right there in Exodus chapter 20, but then another way to think of them is as two sets of five. Two tables. Or maybe you think of Moses carrying the two tablets, right? You've got the five, the first five that are pointed toward God. They're all about loving God. And then you've got the second five, which are all about loving your neighbor about loving others. Well, Jesus says all of them in one statement. The the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a great summary statement. But Jesus emphasized loving God with everything you are as the first and greatest commandment because in another sense, it's not just 10, it's not just two sets of five, but all the commandments can be summed up in number one. The number one commandment that everything else flows from which is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not have other gods besides me. Now, this has been a countercultural statement for over 3,500 years. This never has fit in culture. In ancient times, it was common to ascribe power to gods. Uh, But to say that there was only one God who had supreme and ultimate power, that was nonsense. People thought that was just crazy talk. Today in Texas, you're not going to find many people who are polytheists, like that they believe in many gods. You won't really get that in Marshall if you're going to lunch today and you ask someone about what kind of God they believe in. They're probably not going to tell you they they believe in multiple gods. Most people are going to say they believe in one God, that they are monotheists. But there's a growing number of people who are atheists or atheists we call them which meaning they don't believe in any god but regardless of what people say they believe on whichever part of the spectrum they're on and what they declare beliefs there are many 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 counterfeit gods being worshiped every day among all of these groups let me tell you what i mean j.i packer says 
He names just a few of these. He, he says they're the gods, uh, the great gods of sex, of shekels, money, and stomach. The enslaving trio of pleasure, possessions, and position. Maybe you see now how even in our world we are drawn and pulled to these other affections outside of the one true God. These other things that compete within us against him. And so certainly it becomes countercultural. Well, how do you spot a counterfeit God? I mean, if this is the, the commandment, don't have other gods besides me, how do you spot a counterfeit God? H- how can you say that's a God and that's not? Well, let me just share this with you. In ancient, the ancient world, when you needed crops to grow uh, for your food supply, you would make an appeal to a higher power because you recognized there was a higher power. Like when it rained, it's not because I chose that it rained. Something else out there made it rain. Well, now I need it to rain again. So what can I do to make it rain again? I can offer anything up to this higher power that might make it rain. Maybe I'll even make animal sacrifices in the ancient world. Maybe even child sacrifices. This abhorrent kind of way of being. But they would do this and then guess what would happen? It would rain that year. And then... The next year would come around and they go, hey, remember, we did this and this and this. Here's the rules. I'm going to set these boundaries in line and it's going to rain again. And so we're going to boom, 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 make this sacrifice, sacrifice that animal, blah, blah, blah. And then it doesn't rain. But instead of recognizing the reality of the situation that maybe, just maybe, it's not that there's a God out there that's a higher power that wants to make it rain if they do these things. Instead, they go, we must not have done enough. This is like built into our human nature and so what do they do they add to their rituals Uh, i'm gonna make more sacrifices i'm gonna make a greater sacrifice i'm gonna give more of myself away so that maybe just maybe it'll rain and my crops will grow and it may or may not rain but the cycle continues on and on and on this is how people lived, thinking eventually they would crack the code and life would get better but it never happened. Does that sound familiar? Let me just give a modern day example. Uh, I can work harder to make more money, to maybe hopefully get the life that I want, right? The car, the, the, the toys, the, the house, the whatever it is. I can work harder. I can put in more hours. I can earn more money. I can get a different job. I can, I can move into upward mobility and do my best in everything I do. And eventually maybe I can make enough money to get the life that I want until the market tanks, until things change that I don't have any control over, then what do I do? Do do I recognize the reality that maybe it's not about what I put in that is yielding that result? No, I work harder. I give more of myself away. I put in more hours at the office. I even sacrifice time with my family so that I can get those things and have the life I want. And then what happens? The market soars. You get all the money in the world and you have everything you could ever dream of. Are you happy? No. Never. It never fulfills what you were designed for. You're still not happy. You still haven't cracked the code. And on and on it goes. Counterfeit gods always require more and more without any promise of return. But God works the opposite. God always gives 
the deliverance, and then invites us into a relationship that's guided by rules. This is how the commandments work. So God's simply saying, this is not how life is designed to work best. These counterfeit gods, it's like going back to Egypt and having the life under Pharaoh all over again. This is not where I want my people to be. So don't have other gods besides me. I love how Pastor Andrew says this uh, over in Longview this morning. He's saying this. He says, God had brought his people out of Egypt. Now he wanted Egypt out of his people. Remember that it's not necessarily about what we do or don't do, but it's about what the law is doing in us. The first command isn't even a command of action, actually, until you understand that it's a command of relationship. Relationship. Uh, our translation says, don't have any other gods besides me. Uh, but you might be more familiar with the phrase, uh, no other gods before me. It's the same idea in Hebrew. Uh, the same idea is really like saying that no other gods to my face. You ever been in one of those situations? Say it to my face, <laughs> right? This is kind of what God is going. Is God saying, would you put something up against me to compete with me? If you do, beware, <laughs> number one. I am aware, number two. I mean, this is the picture that uh, Kevin DeYoung, he, he asked this question in one of his commentaries on uh, the Ten Commandments uh, related to this phrase, no other gods before me. He said, if a husband brought home another woman and introduced her to his wife as someone he intends to spend equal amount of time with in the very same way, what would you expect the wife to say? Would you expect her to say, oh, that's great, dear. Uh, I'm just happy that I can still have a place of honor in your life. No. No, you would expect her to say, you got to make a choice, brother. <laughs> it's me or her. And rightfully so. Because this is how covenant relationships work. And this is what God is saying. I've rescued you. I've redeemed you. I'm showing you my design for the best way to live. I'm inviting you. I'm pointing you towards even a future Savior who will save the whole world. If you would live into this, you would flourish. Covenant relationships can't be either or, or bo both and. They have to be either or. You can't have God and money. Jesus would say this, actually, no man can serve two masters. You cannot worship God and money. But you can fill in the blank, right? You cannot worship God and food. You cannot worship God and sex. You cannot worship God and career. You cannot worship God and sports. You, I mean, you just keep going on and on and on. Growing up, my mom's side of the family always played Trivial Pursuit. Um, I was the kid who like just kind of hung around like wishing I knew all the answers to these questions, you know, like the geography questions. I thought maybe, maybe, I, maybe I could get a geography question because I've been to elementary school. Even then, no, they were too hard. Uh, history, I no, I was out on that. I didn't read enough. 
science, that category, uh, I, I usually didn't have any, it was usually about old science stuff. It wasn't like the basic science stuff I was learning in school. Sports and leisure, though, I was okay at that one. And uh, every once in a while, I could contribute to the guys team on the sports and leisure category. And uh, what we would try to do in Trivial Pursuit, if you haven't played the game, is you have this little circular piece that has these little slots in it. It looks like a pie. And then every category that you answer, like the main question for, you get that little piece of the pie and you add it to your little circle. But God is not a trivial pursuit God. Where we round out our lives by filling in one piece of the pie with Him. Instead, He is the whole thing. And everything else must come under Him. Life works best when God is, as the Apostle Paul says, our all in all. What a phrase. And it points right back to the first commandment. Do not have other gods, gods besides me or before me. I told you Jill is a graphic designer, and uh, I want to just give you one illustration, and we talk about how to apply this. And we understand what God said. Now what do we do with it? So early on in our marriage, I would just kind of watch Jill do her work, and uh, she's very creative, highly artistic, and, uh, and then she would start talking about this thing called negative space. You ever heard about negative space? If you're looking at a logo or just like words on a screen or on a paper, uh, if there's white space behind it, that's called the negative space. So think about the, the letter O. You've got the, the circle in the middle that's white. That's called negative space. Now, you can use negative space intentionally to elevate the positive space. If it's done right, an artist can take it and manipulate the negative space intentionally to elevate the positive space. Now, the first command is a negative command. It's a thou shalt not. But it's not just about taking away from your life. It's about taking away so that you can elevate the positive. And this is where we find the application. This negative command is about elevating God to the sole place of worship in your life. It's about making God the sole devotion of who you are, that everything about you points to Him being the King and Lord and sovereign over all. So yes, it's a thou shalt not, but not just to put you down, but to organize your life in a way where you flourish again because you're putting him in the right place. So the negative leads to the positive. John Calvin, theologian hundreds of years ago, uh, in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, he gives four ways to elevate God to the po- like in the positive way, to elevate the image of God in your life. Uh, here's what they are. The first is adoration. Uh, simply this is just worshiping Christ as supreme. You're here doing this today Welcome to obeying the first commandment. (laughs) You gave up other things to be here because Jesus is important to you. Because God is above, you know, whatever else you could have been spending your time doing this morning. You're already obeying the first commandment. You're already elevating God to the place he deserves. He deserves our highest praise though, not just in an hour on a Sunday, but every moment of our lives. How do we organize our lives as to give God the highest praise? To worship Christ as supreme. 
The second thing is this, trust. We owe God adoration. We also can, can show God our trust where we know Christ as the surest source of life. I like that word trust in financial terms because it means like surety, which is kind of another financial term. That like there will be a return on this investment. This is who God is. Christ is where we find salvation. We count on him for salvation. We know that we cannot save ourselves and so we're putting all our eggs in his basket. That when it comes to the time of judgment and, and, and the Lord says, why should I allow you into my kingdom? We don't say because I was a good person. We don't say because I tried really hard. We don't say because I, I got some things right, but I know I messed up in some places. We say because of Jesus, that's it. That's the only reason all my eggs are in that basket. He has earned and deserves my trust and he will come through, right? So what does that look like every day of life to lean on him? To go, I can't save myself. I will never position myself against God, trust in myself or my own abilities, but I will always choose trust in Jesus. Third thing is this, invocation. Invocation, this is just a fun churchy word that we get to use today. But I didn't come up with it. John Calvin came up with it hundreds of years ago. So simply put, this is seeking Christ as our greatest advocate. Seeking Christ as our greatest advocate. Did you know you can turn to the God of the universe for every answer? That when you lack purpose, you can turn to Jesus? That when you don't sense joy in your life, you can find it in Him? And He is your greatest advocate with the Father, praying for you, advocating for you, defending you. Whenever God looks at you and says, you're guilty of sin. If your faith is in Jesus, Jesus steps in and says, no, God, actually, they're not guilty of sin because I've given them my righteousness. He stands in the gap for us. So we call on him constantly. It's practical application. To have no other gods before me? Well, you won't if you're constantly calling on Jesus. I love how Jesus taught us to pray even. Uh, he taught the disciples to pray, uh, Luke 18 and, uh, and uh, Luke 11. I think it might be Luke 11. I got that wrong now. I should have looked that up. He teaches the disciples to pray, and he says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You see how that's like a direct, the first thing to pray is also the first commandment, that God is separate, holy, unique, deserving of our praise. And that's how we invoke Jesus. He's holy. He's perfect. And then finally, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. This is just where we find and acknowledge that our grace is from Jesus Christ. In everything in life. He's the reason for your good days. He's the one who keeps you resilient in your bad days. Whatever your life brings... If you turn your attention and affection to Jesus, you will be obeying the first command to have no other gods besides him. This is how we live out God above all. This is how we flourish again in life. Maybe today you're not flourishing. Maybe you're burned out. Maybe you're just tired 
Um, maybe things just haven't gone well for you. You feel like you're doing the right thing, but things are just taking a turn that you didn't expect. The invitation to you is to find, number one, salvation in Jesus Christ, to establish a relationship with God that supersedes all circumstances, and then to be refined by this way of life that God gives us in the Ten Commands. It's an invitation to you. If you would recognize that your life maybe isn't perfect right now, and if your life is going well that you aren't perfect, then you will see Jesus in the Ten Commandments. And the invitation is to turn to him with your life. I want to lead you in a brief prayer, and we're going to have a song of response. And you get a chance to do that today before we leave. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. I, I pray that we would take this ancient code of law, not see it as a to-do list or a to-don't list, but as an invitation for you to do something in us that brings us more joy, more fulfillment, that leads us into the kind of life that you created us for, that we can reclaim the image of God, the mold that you cast us into. pray specifically today for people in the room who don't, don't feel like they're flourishing, that you would give them the courage to turn to Jesus, to put faith in Jesus for the first time, or to let things go to be refined by Jesus even more. We respond to you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.